0: This is Brian Bellick, and I'm glad to be joined by my partner, Dennis Green. Welcome to the Coach's Show podcast. Uh here we go. Coach, it's great to be back. Been, <laughs> I, been on hiatus a little I, bit I, here. Well,
1: you you have been. In fact, I mean last Monday, and I thought I said, Well, Brian's not here Monday. And so I'm a, I'm a, you know, we're gonna work this podcast. I had Mike Money here. You know, he did a good job filling yeah. in, but he wasn't you. But I said, I wonder if Brian is uh is maybe uh Getting called into one of these uh, assignments and uh, assessing his knowledge on one of these there you teams, go. and I found out it
0: was well. Let's talk about Philadelphia. That. Yeah. Let, well, let's talk about that, and, and let's um, let's talk about the, the perspective that comes up. Let's talk about that whole process because things are going to start jumping here. First off, the process has changed from when you and I first became head coaches. Uh, in the old day, it used to be. The owner, the general manager, uh, when they were making a coaching change, right, they'd have a guy or two or three in mind. They would talk and interview people, uh, and and then they would make a choice and go. But right. today it's different, very corporate. you got to go through the process. You're going to go look at, at everybody, a wide range. And now when you sit in meetings and, and the interview process that goes on, uh, there is not only now the owner. General manager, personnel guy, marketing guy, PR guy, some consultant because they all have headhunters. It's truly, as you become, I think Mike Smith uh, told me when he interviewed in Atlanta that it was a matter of there may have been 12 different people. Right, included in that process. So it has changed for me specifically. And there's been conjecture about now that I've interviewed with, uh, 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 Philadelphia and I'll make it clear the typical, look, it's not for me to comment in that situation. That's not fair to Philadelphia. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to the coaches, but I will say this over the last five years that I've been doing this because of the position I'm in, I've had several conversations with a lot of teams, not the least of which several and several have this year have reached out to me and say, coach, We're in the market for a head coach. You sit in a different facility every Friday. You visit with coaches, players, general managers. You see what's going on in the league. You visit with these coordinators via your coaches show all year long. We're interested in your perspective and who are the guys out there we ought to visit with. And so uh, I've had that kind of conversation with a number of teams, have had that kind of conversation with a number of teams right now that are looking for a head coach. Uh, Anything beyond that, uh, to comment on it from my part, It's not fair to the team. It's not fair to me. It's not fair to the coaches. But let's talk about that process now in the hiring process and how much it has changed.
1: Well, I think what's changed is part of kind of the new world and the new way of doing things. And I have to say, I don't totally agree with it. I really don't. I think here's the problem is that first off, every organization, I don't care if it's eBay or if it's, you know, the Cleveland Browns or wherever it is, you've got one person in charge, and then if that's the owner, that's the owner. Then you've got a CEO, a guy who is the next guy in charge, and it's his job to make sure the operation of the whole organization goes well. Okay, then you've got a guy that's uh, in charge of football, and, and many times that's the guy maybe you just let go. But I think the problem is the more people that you bring in, The more the decision gets watered down, the less uh, one guy, meaning the owner, the number one guy, can become absolutely convinced that this is the right guy that he should hire. And so it becomes kind of voting by committee. Everything is by committee. And I I think that's why the same names. You know, last week on on the show with Mike Money, I said, hey, Brian Billick should get one of these jobs. They should come chase him all over the building. John Gruden should, and also Bill Cowher. Gruden and Cower have said that they're interested. You haven't said so much, but now obviously you, you at least have some interest. And I, I think that too many of the same names pop up. There are about six guys, and they're kind of going around. I think some of them have had like five interviews already. Right. And it's almost like, well, first off, you're, I don't know how you would even assume that those six guys are ready because they don't really have big reputations. They haven't been around that long. They haven't been necessarily hired. and I'm not putting guys down, but I'm just saying that these names emerge and all of a sudden everybody can only talk to those guys. And really, everybody right. should have really their own three guys. Your right. own three, four guys. Not necessarily the same three, four guys that everybody else has. And so I think this process right now is going to dictate that when guys get hired. The problem is the long-range commitment to them has not been there. In other words, too many coaches, I've said it before, too many coaches don't get enough time to have success in their programs. And I think the more the watered-down process is, the less likely it is to really be committed to that guy. Right. You mean, to really say, hey, the owner says, this is my guy, I'm going to give this guy all the tools that he needs. But if it's by both of eight or nine committee, they look and they say, well, what do you think? Well, I thought he'd do better. What do you think? What do you think? Well, next thing you know, the guy's given two years on a four-year contract and never got a chance to turn and, the program In around. the
0: case of Mike Malarkey, one year. Yeah. You know, and that's the nature of... You're, you're exactly right, Denny, and although... And it's maybe unavoidable. It's where we are today as well. The social media, the the immediacy of what the Internet is about, and all the social media as well. In the day, back for you and I, the coaches that you were looking at, you may not know who they're interviewing. That was a very look, this is a, a, an individual process. You didn't necessarily get it out there that you were visiting. You, know, you could guess or estimate to a degree. But now, because of the explosion uh, of uh, social media, it's almost like these clubs have to announce, as though they're obligated to say, okay, we're going to look at these six, seven, eight, nine guys, and, and, and also the, men, the mentality, and I understand that to a degree, that you look at it and say, we're going to examine the entire field. We're going to look at it all. Well, yeah, I understand that the no stone unturned, and I get that. And you can always look at I want to look at one in column A. You know, the the former head coaches in this league. Here's one in column B, uh, the curtain coordinators in the league. Here's column C, the college coaches, some right. who have had NFL experience, and then there's column D college coaches that have had no NFL experience, and I'm going to kind of sample one in each area, maybe a couple, to get this broad based of what do we put together. A part of the process is that you have to keep in mind, it's also the quality of the stabs you can put together. When you're talking about in Buffalo with Doug Marone, in Cleveland with Rob Chesinski, and in Kansas City, of course, with Andy Reid, these three organizations now have a huge advantage in terms of them allowing them to get the coaches they want to st- to staff and put this together because now it's going to be like the gold rush. As the other jobs now start to fill in, it's a gold rush to get the coaches that you want. In a lot of instances, you may not be able to get them. So now you're starting off with maybe not the staff you really wanted. Now you make changes next year because now some guys that you do want come available. Everything just kind of gets thrown off kilter. So the time frame on this is very, very precise right now.
1: Well, and and to a certain extent, it's music of chairs too because if you have the same five guys interviewing for the same, you know, Four jobs, then all of a sudden, when this guy goes, you wind up taking the other guy just simply because he's available. And so I, I, I guess it's uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I, I look back to 1992, and I really aged myself here. So let's go yeah. back to, to 1992, and and you had Jimmy Johnson was the head coach of Dallas, and you know Don Chill was the head coach of Miami, and Bill Parcells the head coach of uh, of New York, and and so you had all these guys that had been around a long time. And I guess that's when I go back to, you know, this idea that are we sure that a guy should be a head guy just because he was a coordinator? Are we sure that we're not leaving some very talented guys out there who really should still be coaching uh, and could really bring a lot to the table that aren't? And I think this is how this kind of new NFL, and it's uh, it's, it's where we're at right
0: now. Yeah. one of, One of the resources that when clubs – ask my opinion that they ought to look at as well as I don't think they consider special team coaches around the league. I know Keith Armstrong in Atlanta had an interview, but like you saw with the John Harbaugh in Baltimore who followed me in Baltimore. I think they're, because think about it, special teams coaches are guys that A, work with everybody on the team for the most part. They know more of the guys. Two, they, they have to get guys to do some things that really you don't want to be doing. Right. And three, as we know, they have a different perspective on the talent. It's not a matter of, well, can this guy play linebacker? Can he play tight end? I don't care. Can he run? Can he break down? Can he tackle? Is he an athlete? Right. That gives you a pure look at the the, the evaluating of players. And that's a – there is again, is a category that I think some of these clubs – uh, are unrealized guys like a Brad Seeley in San Francisco. I think would be uh, I know Doug DeCamillis in in Dallas is interviewing, so I think we're seeing another avenue that these organizations are uh, you know saying, "Okay, we need to consider everybody." I think there's more of it out there. So, yeah, it's fascinating to say the least, and I think we're going to see a, a an explosion of it this week at the very least after the championship game, and the time frame has changed. We just talked about I was made aware of the fact that over the last 30 coaching hirings, not including this year, that only seven were hired before the 30th of January. Yeah. Now, that doesn't feel right. It's surprising, but I think that
1: uh, it shows that people are locking on the teams that are winning because that means they're waiting until uh, the playoff-type teams are, are, are available. And they also they can interview, so they can interview before him, but they cannot offer the job until the season is over. Um, uh, and, uh, and so, uh, I think that makes it a little bit different. Here we go. From the 39, a 49-yard attempt right has to get Atlanta into the NFC Championship game here next week against San Francisco. The snap. Snap placement. Kick up. It's got the distance. Got a chance. It is good. Atlanta. Has regained the lead with eight seconds to go. Matt Bryant with a big 49-yard field goal. 30 to 28, Atlanta.
0: Well, let's move on to some. What a great weekend of football. The divisional round football is is so great because you're talking about the eight teams that deserve to be there. That are obviously very closely matched, and we had some just phenomenal games. I I had the Seattle Seahawks in Atlanta. Let's talk about a couple things in that game. You talk about the ebb and flow with Atlanta jumping out on top, and then Seattle coming back the way they did. Let's talk about some of the coaching decisions, because Pete Carroll, in particular, and Mike Smith were put into some coaching tough coaching circumstances. Let's talk about the decision to go for it, not only on third and one, of course you go for it on third and one on, on Pete Carroll, but going for it on a fourth and one right. uh, late in the first half when things were kind of going Atlanta's way. Let's talk about that decision of Pete Carroll. First, should he go on for it on fourth and one? I kind of know where you're going with that because <laughs> we've been doing this show enough and some of the decisions they made in terms of who was in the game.
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the score was 13 and nothing. You definitely won points and you wanted three points, but you wanted, you know, you wanted those seven points and I, I think that I, I've never gone for it on fourth down and when I didn't get it I, I didn't look at myself and just say you know what that was, that was pretty bad. I mean, you you know you should have kicked that field goal. If it was fourth and two or three, you would definitely kick the field goal, so that stands to reason that even in fourth and one, and I know it looks like you can pick it up and you should right. be able to pick it up and all that, but you really need points, and I, I think that uh, Pete's team did a great job because they came back. They did not let anything deter them, so even not getting any points after a beautiful drive, a lot of great things went on, but then on fourth and one, a guy breaks through. He's unblocked. He makes a big hit, and they don't get it, and all of a sudden now, they come away with no points at all, but they still battled back magnificently in the second half.
0: Yeah, I think, to, to not that I need to depend, defend Pete Carroll, but I think the mentality watching the game is they were down to 13, uh, 13 nothing early and had done nothing in the game up to that point. Uh, they were able to drive the length of the field, and I think he felt like he had to do something to take emotional control of the game that just a three-point field goal might not have, even if the score is 13-3. to I understand that, would, that clearly would have been the right decision, particularly right. as the game turned out. Also, them messing up at the end of the first half where Russell Wilson gets sacked, and then he isn't able to get the snap off. They missed the opportunity maybe to get a more orchestrated field goal there. That's six points that in what ultimately ended up in a two-point loss certainly would have made a big difference, but I will make the point that 3rd and one, fourth and 1, now what I do disagree is not having Marshawn Lynch on the field on the first 3rd and 1. You have to at least present the option that you're going to give the ball to Marshawn Lynch. Now, he was on the field on a fourth and one, and it was just a nice play. William Moore, the safety, they got all bunched up on the inside. The tight end blocked because he, uh, uh, William Moore wasn't on the line of scrimmage. Tight end raised up, blocked out, and William Moore just pulled the trigger. And as is typical on a fourth and one, if you're going to stop in fourth and one, right. you've got to get a pat on a guy like Mar- uh, Marshawn Lynch in the backfield because he's going to get that first down otherwise. But I certainly understand the thinking of a Pete Carroll, at least right. for me, for him trying to get that first down. But
1: I think the other thing that makes it more difficult is that, I mean, the tackles probably had to make it. All you had to do was make a gap call to the tight end. Uh, but it's so noisy. He might have didn't hear it. Uh, maybe he didn't make it. Uh, you know, the bottom line is you never let an unblocked guy run through like that. And the tight end did. And so I just think that those are the things that can happen on the road. Maybe even at home. Maybe at, at home you do go for a little bit more. But hey, uh, you know, Seattle was there. They had their chances.
0: Yeah. At the end of the half, they're they're wondering why why you know whose fault it was that they weren't able to get a, a more orchestrated call or a field goal at the end. And people are saying, well, Russell Wilson should have not taken the sack. And and thrown the ball away. He didn't have a chance. No. Uh Babineau came off that edge and, and before he had even and the last thing he wanted to do was ground it, that now brings the penalty with that, or fumble the ball and now give them no chance to make a play. So I think the young quarterback, and he is a young quarterback, obviously that was a heated situation in a very crowded, noisy dome. Let's talk about it at the end of the game when Pete went to freeze the kicker, and we've talked about this many times. Um, and, and it kind of got odd to, to listen to, the, to what uh, Pete Carroll was saying afterwards. Clearly, he did call a timeout. There was some question at the time was because uh, uh, Bryant, the kicker, missed. Right. But the timeout was called. And we've seen that time But and you time know again. what?
1: But interestingly, Pete did not give the signal of timeout. He told the official timeout. So he's right. with the official. And he said, all right, now. Either said now or a right. timeout or something. But he didn't do the – you know,
0: normally you get it right in that official's face and do that. And and part of the explanation afterwards, he seemed a little focused. If we remember the night before uh, in the Denver-Baltimore uh, uh, game, where as we transitioned in the overtime quarter, Baltimore wisely, because there's not a rule and no one stopped them, they ran their kicking coach and their kicker out there to actually practice and get a stroke, <laughs> uh, which now the league, we both know the league's going to address that now. That's right. going to have to be fixed. Pete was more focused, it sounds like, in his explanation that he didn't want them. He felt like that extra stroke uh, that, that uh, uh, Atlanta had violated that rule that wasn't going to be allowed, but this was different. You, If you don't call timeout early enough, if you're trying to time this up tight enough to put some pressure on that kicker, if he gets that, which I don't like, I'm not going to give a pro kicker an extra mulligan right. to size up the field goal and take the shot. So it just did not come down real well, and I'm not sure Pete – wasn't focused on the wrong thing
1: yeah well i think as soon as the guy gets over the center over the ball then you if you're going to do that you want to call it but i think what pete is saying it makes sense in that are we going to continue to let a guy snap the ball anyway kick the ball anyway even though it's timeout in other words we go out timeout those all plays stop and that's really what the the rule says when the the whistle blows all play stops. doesn't matter what it is. Whistle blows the ball, fumbled, anything. When the whistle blows, the official blows the whistle, that ball should not be snapped. But, of course, the center says, what are you going to do if I do? I mean, yeah. there's no penalty. I mean, it's not like 15 yards unsportsmanlike conduct. So they snaps the ball anyway, right. and they get a freak, and he kicks the ball anyway. And they say, you know what, and I miss it to the right. Okay, now, okay, I see. I'm going, I'm going to just straighten it out just a little bit.
0: Well, and you can't ask the center. The holder and the kicker, as we all know, there's three parts to it, that we want you to, they've got to do their job with the idea of being, I don't care if the whistle blows or not, I can't worry about that, I'm going to do my job. And so I'm not going to sit there going, well, should I, should I not snap it? That my, my uh, holder tells me to snap the ball, I'm snapping it, and the holder's going to hold it, and the kicker's going to kick it, and you want to step in front of it, that's fine. But until that whistle blows and with an adequate enough time to clearly say stop what you're doing, we're not, the, 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 you're, you're putting them in an impossible position. But nonetheless, obviously it was a spectacular game. I'll make the point that I think Atlanta, who was carrying around the burden of, okay, can you win a playoff game all year long, People say, I don't care if you're 13-3. and three. I don't care if you won the division. I don't care if you're the number one seed. Can you win a playoff game? And the pressure that more specifically was coming to Mike Smith and Matt Ryan. They could have continued on that game, won 30-10, to 10, and that would have been great. That had their first playoff win, uh, and, and that would have been great. But I think the way it played out in terms of, yeah, they jumped up. Seattle came back. But for Matt Ryan to walk on the field with less than 30 seconds, two timeouts, orchestrate those two great throws down the field and then get a game-winning field goal takes them further in terms of their confidence. We are that team of destiny. As opposed to what a 27 or 30 to 10 route would have been, I think this makes Atlanta, even though in the game I mistakenly said at the end, this gives Seattle, this makes Seattle the legitimate uh, number one seed going into and the favorite to go to the Super Bowl. Clearly, I meant Atlanta. Um, I think in a way that that, a 30 to 10 route wouldn't have done.
1: Well, I think it really establishes it that, that, first off, Seattle is a good team. They, they have comeback capabilities. The, the story with, with Colin Kaepernick is every bit as exciting as a story for Russell Wilson, but Old Reliable, you know, came through, and, and so I think that's the key thing. Atlanta played so well at home, so for them to have the lead I and mean, be going along like, like they normally are and saying, okay, it's fine, and then for them having to get back off the deck once they lost the lead and to say, okay, guys, we're at home. We can pull this thing out. I I think it was magnificent on their part.
0: Well, make sure to check out Jeff Darlington's article on NFL.com about the Falcons prevailing in an astounding divisional round weekend.
1: Third down and three from the 30. Flacco in the gun with 42 seconds. Gets the snap. Has time. Steps up. Flacco throws, airing it deep,
0: looking for Jacoby Jones. He's got it at the 20, inside the 10, and he'll walk in for the touchdown. 70 yards from Flacco to Jacoby Jones, and the Ravens, with 31 seconds to go, have a chance to tie it up. Well, let's let's go to the AFC, Denny. Again, an equally amazing game, Baltimore and Denver. And as I was watching that game, and obviously very compelling to watch with you, Peyton Manning and all the things with Ray Lewis and whatever. We saw it in that game. I saw it in my game with Seattle and Atlanta. You know, (laughs) safeties back up. I mean, as long as you and I have been in this game, stay as deep as the deepest. If you're in the middle of the field and some of the abilities to get in my game with Cam Chancellor letting uh, Roddy White get in behind him and trying to hide coverage in a big play that turned out in a touchdown in the Baltimore game for that safety to let uh, in a couple instances, I understand Champ Bailey. Okay, you get beat, you get beat by you know, Torrey Smith, he's a fast receiver, but let, uh, 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 to let uh, Jacoby Jones get in behind a safety in a corner that when there was nothing else underneath them, how you, in a game where you just knocked that ball down, this game is over, Correct. back up. Yeah,
1: well, I think it just shows you that guys will, will kind of overemphasize their ability. And are very confident and and don't want to be in that fifteen to twenty yard alignment, but you really should be. I mean, you know they're going to go deep, and it 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 was shocking. Uh, but again, it it showed first off, and and maybe it's the other part is. Guys think maybe a guy can't throw the ball that far, but they were wrong. I mean, you know, Matt Ryan has got a cannon for an arm. He threw that ball. I don't know what the distance was, but it had to be 65 yards maybe. Joe Flacco the same way. These guys can throw. I mean, they put that ball out there, and so Flacco, you know, threw it, and uh, hey, what can you say?
0: You know, John, Fox came out, as you do when you lose. You know, you're going to come under criticism for this call or that call. There were two calls in particular. Let's talk about it as coaches. One was uh, decided rather than let Peyton Manning try to go for a first down, uh, they went for a 52-yard field goal, which they did not make. And then subsequent to that, at the end of the half, uh, uh, Baltimore drove the length of field in three plays to score. That went from 21-14 to now 21-21. Uh, and the point being in those coaching decisions, first, do you believe your kicker can make it? At mile high, and the guys have the big year, yes. And do I think my defense gonna hold up given the amount – of time left if he misses it yes you answer those two questions you take the shot now it didn't turn out that way and you had no idea that joe flack was going to be able to hand off a draw play right. to ray rise and him go 30 or 35 yards down to the five yard line but you have to know that john fox believed his kicker can make that kick
1: yeah you do and, and i think when you look at it you're the odds are with you in that we've got another 10 yards on top of it uh he's hitting the ball very well and you know do we want to punt it uh i don't know about that uh, you know, so when you go through the
0: scenario, the field goal is the is the one that you
1: feel confident about.
0: And and the flip side of that leads just to the exact situation at the end of of regulation, thirty seconds left, two timeouts. Let's remember in the Atlanta game, at the end of regulation, or excuse me, closing in on the end of the game, under thirty seconds, two timeouts. Now the difference being, Atlanta had no choice to go for it because right. they were down. Uh, uh, down by a point, so they had to drive the length of the field for the the field goal to try to win the game, otherwise they go home. Certainly, the game is tied a little bit different for for uh, Denver, but the same amount of times do you believe that Peyton Manning can maybe orchestrate with two timeouts and thirty seconds enough distance to give my field goal kicker a chance to kick a field goal uh, to 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 win the game um, or or uh, yeah to win the game rather than have to go into overtime? Maybe part of the factor is you know what I just saw my kicker shank or just you know totally miss a 52 yarder. How far do I have to get down right. given the amount of time that I have? I believe in my team in overtime.
1: Yeah, and also Peyton has been you know been known to try to force the ball a little bit too. So I, I we think saw that, that too, didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> well I think that uh, that Fox probably felt like, hey you know what uh, let's let's start it up. And you know when you're not under the pressure of trying to score. Uh, in a certain period of time where we can get our offense out there and run it like we have been running our no huddle and we should be able to move the ball and I think that was a calculated risk that he took. Second down, long four. In the pistol, five yards away from his center. Running back behind him. Tight end at his side. Kaepernick gets the ball. Fakes the handoff, runs over the right tackle. Comes to the 45, tucks it, got a block at the 50 on the numbers. The 40, a foot race to the 30, down the near sideline, the 20. Chase to the 10, down the sideline, the 5. He'll gallop into the end zone for a San Francisco touchdown. A 56-yard touchdown by quarterback Colin Kaepernick.
0: Let's let's go to to the NFC side on on uh, Saturday night Green Bay at San Francisco. Boy, what a stunning game. I, Colin Kaepernick and I've been a fan of of Jim Harbaugh making that move. I think there's just something special about this guy. But my goodness, almost 200 yards rushing on the day. And and Frank Gore had had over 100 yards rushing himself, but Green Bay, and Dom Capers, in my mind, is one of the preeminent best defensive coordinators in the game, the defensive coordinator for the Green Bay Packers. But whether it's two-man, whether it's man, Colin Kaepernick, particularly after the first time he cranked off a few of those runs, you've got to change your mentality about how you're going to approach this guy, don't you?
1: Well, you'll break your defense down. I mean, I think once you have a, a, a threat like this, then you've got to start with the option. You, you really do. Otherwise, I mean, they will do this to you. I mean, we've all seen these college games where they go out and rush for 500 yards or something. If you don't have a plan, you have to have a plan to stop the option. That plan has to say we have to have two alley players, a player in the alley on each one of the alleys, and those two alley players have to make sure that that quarterback doesn't have the ball. That is what you have to do. You don't like it. You hold your nose when you do it. But the bottom line is the threat of the option is enough to make you change up your philosophy. If you don't do it, what happens is 181 yards. Never in the history of the National Football League has a quarterback rush for 181 yards in the game. And this was a crucial game and not in that many carries simply because they were not ready to defend the option.
0: Yeah. And nor can we take away the fact that the San Francisco defense, which is so good, did a great job on Aaron Rodgers and that group of receivers that he had. But And we'll talk in a minute when we get through the games that were played in terms of what that now means for the games coming up with San Francisco now going to Atlanta for the NFC Championship game, and we'll finish off in the AFC. Houston, New England, that game kind of went the way we thought it would, that Houston wasn't going to be enough of a team to go up on the road, although they made it a game right. you know, in the first half. But Tom Brady particularly, you have to be so impressed with Tom Brady when he lost Gronkowski's, when he lost Woodhead, which you knew were a big part of the game plan, and just the next guy comes in and Tom Brady, he just keeps rolling.
1: Well, I think the, the next guy comes and wants to play well for Tom Brady. And and Tom Brady wants to play well for Bill Belichick. And Bill Belichick wants to coach well for For, for Bill Belichick. <laughs> you know, I mean, this this team has made it look awful easy. And and I just don't know. Uh, you you know, you want to say people can stand up to him, and we'll talk about Baltimore. Can they stand up to him? We know they can. Uh, at one point, does Tom Brady not have a great game? Peyton Manning did not have a great game. He had a solid game, but not a great game. Uh, Colin, Penn, uh, you know, uh, Kaepernick, Kaepernick mm-hmm. had a great game. Uh, is Tom Brady going to have another great game this week? I don't know, but I tell you what, they really go use all the weapons they have and they pull them from all over the field.
0: Yeah, hard to bet against them. Well, let's talk about the matchups before we get out of here in the NFC: San Francisco and Atlanta. What I see, and this is interesting, Atlanta now, Mike Nolan's doing such a great job with that defense. At the end of the day, the Atlanta defense is not a great personnel defense. He knows he's a little personnel short. He's got to make up for it in scheme. He's got to put more people at the line of scrimmage than he probably wants to. Uh, This is a great swarm tackling team, though, Danny. I love the way these guys rally to the ball, and that makes things happen. What I saw in the Seattle game was... They clearly had knew that they had to put a lot of bodies on the line of scrimmage to stop Marshawn Lynch and Russell Wilson. They did that. They weren't going to let anybody get behind them. I just criticized safeties, both in the case of Denver and in Seattle, about back up. They weren't going to let Russell Wilson throw that 50-, 60-, 70-yard bomb down the field. What that did create then was that area of the 20 or 15 to 20, 25-yard deep middle area where they were able to get throws in there. And that made them vulnerable. You can't stop at all. I don't know that if you wanted to be critical – Uh, more into the second half once Russell Wilson started to make those kind of throws that you don't say, okay, I may get gouged in the run a little bit, but the time on the clock is in my favor. I'm going to take away those intermediate routes. I'm going to let you run the ball a little bit, Russell Wilson. I'm going to let you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and gouge me a little bit. I'm not going to let you make those big throws in behind me. To me, that's the challenge for Atlanta right now. They're going to have to do some things to make sure a Colin Kaepernick and a Frank Gore don't beat them in the run you got to be backed up so Randy Moss and some of these other guys and, and Crabtree don't beat you down the field. But that intermediate area, you're going to have to address because now Vernon Davis, who hasn't been a big part of the 49er attack the last couple of weeks, uh, he can kill you in that intermediate area. Yeah,
1: and they kill you by running what we call a corner route just down the field and it to the corner because he's in behind that alley player, or he can come down and break it right in the middle. That You're going to have to force Kaepernick to beat you with his arm. I mean, if yeah. they have a chance, it has to be. We have to shut down Gore, which means that we have to have an alley player on both sides, and those guys have got to be able to penetrate, and that alley player has got to be able to stay on his feet and react, and that's that safety. And from that point on, then we have to make sure that we take away Kaepernick running the option. And then from there, we'll defend the pass. And if Kaepernick has a heck of a day throwing the ball, Atlanta's going to have a very difficult time stopping him because this is a very explosive team, and you have to count on him being off. You know, be a little wild, which he can be at times. Uh, Make some errant throws. Throw you the ball. Uh, make him see it late, and and, uh, and uh, throw a play that said he shouldn't throw. You're going to need something like that to beat him. Because otherwise, if you don't go out with your mind made up to stop the option, this guy will kill you. He showed that last week. He will not even make it close.
0: Let's flip it for the Atlanta offense. Obviously had a great game by Matt Ryan and the surrounding cast. The king that surprised me against Seattle, and I don't think Seattle thought they could do this, and and it's going to be true in the San Francisco game, they ran the ball very well. Michael Turner, who's not had a good year, looked like the old Michael Turner, running over people, sidestepping good feet and getting on the edge. Jaquez Rogers, he was running over people. Right. He ran over Earl Thomas in the middle of the field one time. I thought, have we got the wrong jersey on here? Was that not Michael Turner that uh, they must have switched jerseys? Uh, and, and so they had a running attack that I got to believe Seattle came in feeling like, they're not going to be able to run on us. So we're going to take care of Julio Jones and Roddy White. We'll clamp down on uh, Tony Gonzalez, Harry Douglas in the slot. We know Rodgers can catch the ball in the backfield, but we don't think they can run on us, and that's exactly what Atlanta did. Also, they weren't able to get pressure on Matt Ryan. They lost Chris Clemens, obviously, last week against Washington. That's going to be a different scenario against the 49er team. If they can hold up in protection like they did against Seattle – And they can get a little bit of the run going like they did against Seattle. Atlanta's at home, who they're very good at home now, uh, and there's no denying that, and have the confidence now. They don't have to hear about that. You can't put win a playoff game anymore. That is behind them. But I think this 49er defense presents another stiffer challenge for them than even the Seattle team
1: did. Well, I think it definitely does, but they know they have to run the ball. It's going to start with the running the ball and not saying that Matt Ryan's got to win it by himself. They have, I mean, what, what Seattle doesn't have, They've got the receivers. They've got Roddy White. They've got Julio Jones. I mean, those guys can go make plays. they got Gonzalez down the middle. So all three of the receiving core are much better than Seattle's. Uh, I think that Matt and Ryan, obviously, a more experienced quarterback. So as long as they run the ball, don't try to pass it right. all the time. I think that they've got a, a legitimate chance. Uh, and then the idea of the protection's got to hold up. They've got to be able to do their part on it. And I think, you know, at home, uh, Atlanta's looking pretty good.
0: And the 49ers have struggled historically on the road. They haven't won since 1989. Again, the West Coast, to East Coast, and all that. Pete Carroll, when I visited with him, and I'd have said the same thing. You know, they'd gone to Washington, and then back, then come back to Atlanta, said, look, we don't think about it. We're built for it. It's not an issue. Okay, I like that mentality, but the fact of the matter is, like when you play in a hot game in August, you can say the heat's not a factor for us. We don't think about it. It's still hot. It's hot. Okay? You, you, that team was worn out, and, and they looked worn out in the first half. I give them great credit for bouncing back emotionally and physically in the second half. They could have folded up, and no one would have blamed them for it. That's a long haul to go. And that crowd beat them down, but they responded to it. I give Pete Carroll and that Seattle team great kudos for fighting back through it. San Francisco having to go on the road in a dome, where they're and that dome was going to be cranking. Is it ever? Atlanta folks kind of – they were waiting to see if Atlanta was going to win a playoff game, and they had it rocking pretty good. It is going to be – it's going to be a wholly different atmosphere uh, in the Dome this weekend because the Atlanta fans are now on board. They believe they're that team of destiny, and uh, it's going to be a heck of an environment for San Francisco to come into. AFC Championship, Baltimore, New England, all the things we just talked about. Tom Brady's been brilliant, but I will say this. This matchup I like Baltimore because, one, they're not afraid to go into Foxboro. They're used to it. Two, their offense has moved the ball well. It moved the ball well last time they played earlier on, and – they drove the length of the field last year in the AFC Championship. What what should have been a game-winning drive, and obviously the missed field goal at the end, end of, with Billy Cundiff and, and the heart-wrenching loss, uh, but they were in a position to win the game. Baltimore's going to go into New England more confident with their ability to beat New England than any team that could go in there.
1: Well, you know what? I mean, are they the team? Every year we've had this yep. team, this wild-card team. Is this that wild-card team? that says we can go on the road and play against the best. Now, you played Peyton Manning last week. You're going to play Tom Brady this week. You mean to tell me you can beat both of those guys? Well, uh, if you do, you've earned it. You've, you've earned it. They, they've they got a beautiful rec- uh, receiving core. We all know about Rice as a runner. The line is holding up pretty well. I think they got a shot, but it's going to be tough.
0: Yeah, it is because because Brady can stretch this defense in a way that few people do. and And defensively, I'm talking about New England now, uh, they are a little bit different team than the first team that lost 31-30 up in Foxborough. They've got Aqib Tlaib. Uh, they're playing better team defense. But that offense, the Baltimore Ravens, it's, uh, this is going to be a great game. I think we have two great games uh, for the matchup, and it's going to be another great weekend of football in the National Football League. Well, that's going to do it for the Coach's Show podcast. You can download the Coach's Show podcast from iTunes or go to NFL.com slash podcast. Also, be sure to catch The Coach's Show on the NFL Network every Monday at 6.30 Eastern. Thanks for listening, everybody.